In 1 John chapter 3, we have God's love and our adoption, the fruits of his love, and the assurance before God by faith and holiness. Here now the reading of God's inspired word, 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that she heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son of of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. 
And he that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 1 through 18, we have the love of God in our adoption and the fruit of that love in holiness. <clears throat> Notice here, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Now, this word, what manner, means what tapos is it from? What place is it from? What climate does this come from? What region? This doesn't seem to match any sort of love that we see among men that we should be called the sons of God. And how is it that God calls us his sons? Did you know there are at least two ways? One is God adopts us into his household. He gives us all the rights of his sons. What is the other? He recreates us in his own image, in the image of his son. So we have the adoption, we have the inheritance, and we have the, fa the, fa the, excuse me, the father's image. Now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We have right and title to the inheritance, but do we fully possess in personal application the possession that God has designed for us? He's saying, no, we don't. We are the sons of God, but what, it we, what we shall be, shall be does not appear just yet. And when he shall appear, what does he say? we shall be like him. We will be conformed to the image of the Son of God. That's what does not yet appear. What appears now is our legal right to the inheritance. What appears then is our full possession of the inheritance. This is what we call the beatific vision. The vision of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and being transformed into his image by that vision. Beatific is that which is blessed. Vision is seeing, of course. So the beatific vision. We see with all the blessed our Lord Jesus Christ and are transformed. But notice, this is not merely pie in the sky by and by. This is not just for then. What does he say in verse 3? Everyone that hath this hope in himself, what does he do? He purifieth himself. What is ours by hope will be more and more ours by holiness. What is ours in promise will be ours in progress. This word purifieth means something that is constantly being done. He knows more and more and does more and more the truth of God and his commandments. So therefore he's more and more like Christ. He's more purified. I note this doctrine. Sanctification is progressive and synergistic. Sanctification is progressive, meaning it goes by steps, it goes upward. He purifieth, he is constantly purifying himself. And also note it is synergistic. It's not just the work of God for us, as justification is, but rather it's the work of God in us. We're growing and purifying ourselves, even as he is pure, he says. God is the first cause in our sanctification. 
We are secondary causes. We work because he works in us, but yet we still work. Now, there is a notion that must be corrected, which is this. Justification is the work of God. It's an act he does. Adoption is his act. And therefore, sanctification is just something God does. Let go and let God, they say. Just take your hands off the wheel and let him drive. Because after all, you have no duty to sanctify yourselves. Is that true? That's no, not true. Because you have this hope and he is pure, he is Jesus Christ righteous, your advocate, Therefore, you one day will be conformed to his image. So now, he says, purify yourselves. Let us do so in the light of God's promise. In our hope of the glory of God, let us purify ourselves. Then notice verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is anomia. Namas is law. Nomia is lawfulness. Anomia is unlawfulness, lawlessness, in other words. Sin can be defined as what God says you're to do or not to do, and he says to do it and you don't. He says not to do it and you do it. This is lawlessness. Law defines what is good and evil, Sin is missing that mark, transgressing the boundary marks, the definitions that God says. Sin is lawlessness. Why was Jesus manifested? Verse 5. Ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Here, notice. Here's a purpose for Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Is it to encourage us in our sin? that we may continue in sin so that his grace will abound? He says the opposite. He was manifested to take away our sins. And it's very important to understand that the Spirit of God often uses ambiguous language that can take on more than one thing inside of that definition. Depending on how carefully you choose your words, you could restrict a lot of things. Sometimes the words are intentionally broader how is it that Jesus takes away our sins? Well, one is he bore them in his own body upon the tree. He took our sins to the cross. So he has taken them away in that sense. Well, what else? Well, he also takes away our sins by causing us more and more to put off the old man and to put on the new. He's not there as a minister of sin to build us up in our wickedness. He's there to take them away from us. Oh, but I like my toys. And he says, your, your toys will destroy you. So I'm taking them away. I'm taking your sins away. And that, that is the context in which he mentions this. Christ came to bear our sins upon the cross and also to cause us to mortify, to purify ourselves even as he is pure and has no sin. Whosoever therefore abideth in him sinneth not. Verse 6. He does not abide in sin or lawlessness. The Westminster annotations say he does not practice sin. He maketh it not his trade. What is Casey's trade? Well, he's an electrician. I'm an accountant and a pastor. 
Other men might be plumbers. They have a trade. It's what they do with their lives, right? It's how they make their living. What does a sinner do? He sins. That's his trade. It's the thing that he does all the time. It's what he loves. It's what he lives off of. So here, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not does not mean sinless perfection. It means he doesn't live in the love of his sin, in known sins, refusing repentance and going on in the trade and traffic of his sin. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now the word whosoever sinneth, or the words whosoever sinneth is the sinning one, the one constantly sinning, his identity, his practice, his trade, his way of living. His real characteristics are lawlessness. That's what characterizes him. The law of God in its moral precepts has no use for. Do you know the Jews had no use for the moral precepts of the law? They had a lot of use for the ceremonies. And you can read this in Exodus. If you want to find the one thing they actually did it was all the external rites of worship. Build the tabernacle this way. Yes, got it. Okay, now, build the altar this way. Yes, got it. Okay, make this look this way. Yes, got it. Make it of this skin. Yes, we did that. Make this chapter of this kind of material. Yes, we did that. Nails in the right place. Everything right measurements. Everything's fine. Okay, did they listen to the voice of God? Did they refrain from idolatry? Were they content with their provision? Did they take the land like God told them and promise and said, go up and take this land? Did they do it? No, nothing was done except the external rites of worship. So he's not talking about the commandments and these external things people can do. He's talking about the heart and soul of his law, the moral law. Will you submit yourselves to my commandments or will you be lawless? You can be externally religious and be internally rotten to the core. Let us not be so. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous, with a similarity of righteousness even as the Father is righteous. Calvin notes, newness of life is testified by good works, nor does that likeness of which he has spoken, that is between Christ and his members, appear except by the fruits they bring forth. What is the thing that characterizes you? Do you do righteousness? Do you love God's ways? Are you growing in grace and knowledge? <clears throat> he that committeth sin is of the devil. Again, the sinning one. The one constantly sinning. His trade, his character, his love, his practice. Who gave you that? The devil did. He's the source. He's the original. He's the pattern. Every sinner follows the devil. So you are of the devil if you're constantly committing sin. And why did Christ appear? That he might destroy the works of the devil. The bondage of sin? Yes. The death that comes from it? Yes. The practice of it? Yes. Christ came to destroy them all. Those are all works of the devil. Here we see the grace of our Savior. His power to overcome the strong man, to spoil his goods. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now let's time out for a second and raise up from this. There are people, and I was raised in a tradition of Nazarenes, who believe in this doctrine of perfection and love, or of sinless perfection. And when they read a verse like this, that 
whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, they say, well, see, I have come to a plane in my life where I no longer commit sin. That's how I know that I have the second work of grace, but he's not talking about a second work of grace. He's talking about the first work of grace. Whosoever is born of God, that means God has begotten you again. That means you have a hope of heaven. That means you've been recreated in his image. That means you're a Christian, a genuine believer. It doesn't mean you're a, a top-notch believer who's come to a higher plane than the rest of the believers. It just means you're a believer. That's it. So if this means sinless perfection, that means only the sinlessly perfect are saved. Nobody else is. Nobody else is born of God. No one else is faithful. No one else is an heir of eternal life because that all comes with being born of God. Or perhaps we're misunderstanding the text and it means something else by doth not commit sin. It does not mean freedom from every single sin you could ever possibly commit. Because John said, if you say you have no sin, you are a sinlessly perfect believer. No, you're a liar. And the truth does not abide in you. We know, he says, verse 14, that we have passed from death unto life. Here's a certainty. Here's how we can know that this has occurred to us, that we have been born of God. Because we love the brethren. We love those stamped with the image of God. Behold the love of the Father that should be bestowed upon us. What manner of love is this? Well, we're called the sons of God. And who else do the sons love? Those who are like the Father. And that's what he's saying. That's how we know we've passed from death unto life. We love God. We love his image. We love the Father. We love his children. We love Christ. We love those formed in his image. We love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, do we all offend in all things? Yes. But do we have a committed purpose of life to seek our own will or the good of God's people? That's what it means to love your brother, to seek his salvation, to seek his wealth, to look after his well-being. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. This is the inversion of loving his brother, verse 14, which is a mark of eternal life. Here's the opposite, and this is the tendency of the Hebrews. State it positive, state it negative. Love your brother or hate your brother. Both ways you can see the result. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Well, he's also a murderer, verse 15 tells us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, verse 16 tells us. Giving of what we want, what we have, what our plan is for them. Oh, I have a wonderful plan for your life. Well, what is God's plan? It doesn't matter what mine is. What matters is God's. Are we willing to sacrifice for that purpose to be realized in the life of God's people? Christ did such a thing, and so ought we as well. And then he gives a real-life illustration where the rubber meets the road. Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need. Do you remember what James says? Be warm and filled. That's the faith without works. Everything's going to be fine with you, but I'm not going to help you. 
I'm not going to lift a finger to assist you. Vain words without deeds. If someone shuts up his bowels of compassion, meaning he does not cheerfully want to help his brother in his time of need, not willingly give to his support and sustenance, do you think that's the Spirit of God at work? Loving the brethren? Well, sort of. I don't really want to care for them. That's going to cost me something. I'll have to sacrifice what's mine. No, that is not a mark of grace. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, this is a very common figure of speech where something is prohibited absolutely that is to be understood relatively. Are we to love with words or not? Because he says don't do it. Don't say with your tongue that you love somebody. Do you know that the Holy Spirit inspired John to call them beloved? To love in what? Word. So what does he mean by that? Is he saying that he's wrong for telling them that they're beloved? No, of course not. That's absurd. Let us not love in word and tongue only. These must go beyond mere expression of words to actions, to truth, to something of substance. Because mere saying, I love you, while demonstrating hatred with your actions is hypocrisy. This is a form of speech known as an ellipsis. He leaves out the most important part, the word only, so that you figure it out. It can't just be words. It must be more. It must be deeds. Then verses 19 through 24, how do we assure our hearts before God but by faith and obedience? Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Here are the ordinary means to know that you are of the truth. Loving God, loving his image, keeping his commandments. And his image means his brethren, the brethren of Christ. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Now this word condemn means to find fault. And a weak conscience may falter. Our assurance of faith may be weak. Why? Because our minds condemn us. Our hearts tell us, well, you're wrong. You have all these problems. But here's what he says. God is greater than our hearts. You know, his word is the knowledge of God. It is the mind of Christ delivered to us. We can know what the omniscient God has spoken about assurance of salvation. Here it is in the book of 1 John and elsewhere in the scriptures. God is greater than our hearts. We must test not by our personal feeling, but rather by the word of Almighty God. Then he goes on. He gives us the commandments and he tells us that we ask things of God and we receive them because we keep his commandments. And what are those commandments? Well, he says, believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Here is the, the command of faith, you might say, the command of everlasting life, believe in Christ. And what is the other? Love one another as he gave us commandment. Works under God's authority. Holiness, charity, obedience. Believe in Christ and do his commandments. These are the things that assure us before him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. 
The Spirit produces faith in Christ under the forgiveness of sins. The Spirit produces holiness and love for the brethren. The fruits of the Spirit are obedience to these two commandments. And remember from chapter 2, the anointing, the chrism. This is the anointing of which he's speaking. Let us then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us love one another and all that are begotten of God the Father, all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, page 616 of your pew Bibles. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. We'll read the first four verses. Psalm 51. Hear now the reading of God's inspired.